Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode that you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks. Welcome to episode number three of our DUI series here on the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Paget, And I'm still Tane Kell and still happily retired former judge. We continue to have the benefit of Judge Stuttered's experience and expertise throughout his guest expert appearances. We had no idea he did voices. This has been really a revelation for us, Tane. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Uh, he's going to be our newest FOP, friend of the podcast. We're here with his third appearance. Welcome back, Judge Stuttered. Uh, guys, it's always a pleasure to see you, even if it's been weeks now. But uh, yeah, please call me Ben at this point. <laughs> it's really hard to do. <laughs> it is. In episode number one of this series, we discussed the relevant statutes, elements of proof, and penalties relating to a DUI. Yeah, in episode two, we discussed the recent changes to DUI law and the appellate decisions that have framed those changes. You know, honestly, if you missed episodes number one and two of this DUI series, you really need to go back and listen to those episodes first. But today we're going to talk about implied consent law and the idea of actual consent that must be proven if the prosecution intends to rely upon the consent exception to the warrant requirement. Done like a true host. Nice job, Judge Stuttered. So we're going to define some terms before we launch into this episode. I threatened Tane earlier that he was going to have to answer all these questions about the warrant requirement. But let's you may hear us refer to ICW. That is shorthand for implied consent warnings. It may be just me, but I may say an ICW and I didn't want to blow through that stop sign. Those can be found at 40-5-67.1, as we discussed in the last episode. Want to follow along? Visit our website. Find this episode outline and more information on this episode at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. But you may also hear, hear us refer to the warrant requirement. Tane, this is applied to the stuff that you used to try. So tell the people what warrant requirement. When we use that, we capitalize the W and capitalize the R for a reason. Term of art. Sure, yeah, because the U.S. Constitution and the Georgia Constitution, for that matter, provides that no search shall be conducted without a search warrant issued by a neutral and detached magistrate. The Fourth Amendment, therefore, establishes that a that generally a warrant is required before any search can be conducted. Hence, the shorthand phrased warrant requirement. However... There are recognized exceptions to the warrant requirement that are well-defined and established by law. We're going to discuss some of those exceptions to the warrant requirement in this episode, but this is not Con Law 101. Thank goodness. We're, we're, we're really only going to focus on the consent exception to the warrant requirement. There are others, but the consent exception is our focus. And that means I'm going to play Candy Crush during part of the time y'all are going over some of this stuff, okay? Again? So just let me, yeah, just let me know. Well, I'm, I'm at a really high level now, so Good. yeah. So one thing that we, we need to talk about sort of early in this uh, conversation is that officers who have probable cause can always apply for a search warrant when they make that arrest. And they can usually obtain bodily substances from the individual being searched. And frankly, that eliminates 90% of what we end up arguing about at motions to suppress. The presence of that search warrant is... Really, it's a, there is no exception to the warrant requirement discussion being had because you went and got a search warrant for a neutral detached magistrate. The search warrant would obviate a lot of this conversation. We wouldn't have to talk about 
consent under the statute. We wouldn't have to talk about consent under the Fourth Amendment, under implied consent. Yeah, Just warrant. but there's a reason that you don't get a lot of those in DUI cases, because as you guys know, most of your DUIs don't happen in the broad daylight, in, in noon hours, in convenient times where you can run down to the open courthouse and get one. It means you got to wake a magistrate up at you know, two, three, four in the morning to get that search warrant. And, you know, practically speaking, that's not a good idea in a lot of DUI cases. And if a defendant consents to having a search of his blood, breath, or urine, or her blood, breath, or urine, then that obviates the need for a warrant, as you said. We, but whether or not the consent was valid becomes the next thing. And we also need to be clear that even if a defendant refuses to submit to post-arrest testing, the officer can seek a warrant, obtain the sample without the defendant's consent, usually blood, because the other two would be kind of awkward to get your breath out of your lungs or your, I guess we could do the catheter thing, but that's, that's also awkward. It's kind of messy. Very awkward. Yeah. So well, again, I go back to the point that all you have to do is suggest the catheter method. You had me in a order catheter. to get, yeah, you had me a catheter. <laughs> you, you will get my urine. Yeah, you, We're not going to do that. You may I don't have know what else my we're going to do tonight, but yes. we're not going to do that. So, and we also are going to have to discuss the collateral penalties associated with the refusal to consent to a test, even though that's not really usually in these sorts of judges' realm. It's usually an administrative judge who hears a lot of that. They become really relevant to this conversation. Right. So we've already talked about it. We've now got it clear. A refusal cannot be admitted into evidence, but there's this whole separate procedure system, procedure and system, Tane, known as the ALS, or Administrative License Suspension, um, that comes into play here? Well, one caveat to what you just said. The refusal can't come into evidence if it was a request for a breath test or refusal for a urine test. Refusal of blood test, that can still come into evidence as far as the case law stands right now. Good point. And, today, and right now. Today, yeah. <laughs> and that was At the, this time. That was what you said needed to be changed on the little green card. So, well, uh, the yeah. green card says that they can admit evidence of a refusal of blood and or urine. Right. But as of the Awad case from 2022, urine is, is out. Yeah. You can't talk about refusal of urine, but you can still talk about refusal of a blood test. Excellent. Today. 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 Um, and I it, think that's going to stay. At, uh, I well, hope so. At uh, 11.59 p.m. <laughs> on uh, in June, yeah, in June 20th. Yeah. Yeah. So if the officer makes an arrest for DUI and has probable cause for arrest and the implied consent warning is read, and if the defendant refuses to consent to testing his or her driver's license or right to drive in Georgia, and that's magic words, will be suspended for one year. There's additional suspensions if it's the second or third time in the previous five-year period. I don't want to get down in the ALS procedure. That's not the point of this podcast episode. But I, I do want you to understand that if the refusal is not admissible at the trial, it is going to be impactful to that individual. Well, and, and, and though it says driver's license or right to drive in Georgia, the real reason for that is, is, is important, and that is driving is a privilege not a right and so you have different procedures that you can put into place to revoke that that privilege um, under georgia's laws and constitution so today we're going to focus on sort of a to extend anything's ever, ever stereotypical a stereotypical situation where an officer has made a traffic stop through investigation believes that driver may be under the influence of alcohol or, or, and or drugs 
The officer is seeking the defendant's consent to perform a search of that defendant's blood, breath or urine, whichever one they elected, that using that consent to be their exception to the warrant requirement. Now, we discussed the new version of 40-5-67.1 that was rewritten after Elliot, but now I want to read more about the mechanics of reading the implied consent warning, as faulty as it may be, and how they have to be read. We're going to discuss this concept that became known as actual consent. So let's talk about implied consent warnings in general, Judge. Why don't you talk a little bit about sort of where they came from and what does implied consent warning mean? What are you implying? Yeah, so uh, once it became possible to conduct chemical tests of a driver's uh, bodily substances, uh, the legislature created the uh, this implied consent uh, procedure whereby uh, uh, the state can obtain those, uh, those substances. And uh, they did it through uh, what they call implied consent. The, the statute has a legislative finding uh, that says that anyone who drives on Georgia's roads has impliedly consented to testing of their blood, breath, urine, or other bodily substances to determine the presence of intoxicating substances. Uh, now, to invoke that, the officer has to have probable cause to believe that the person was, in fact, uh, driving while under the influence. In other words, he's arrested. Or if there is a very serious traffic accident and there is some serious injury or fatality. Now, we don't need to revisit all that case law because that was a big mess. Right. But the implied consent laws in general have, by the Supreme Court, Georgia, U.S. Supreme Court, sorry, have been found to be generally permissible as long as they don't impose a criminal penalty for refusing. The question becomes, as on evidence basis, what's admissible, what's not. We've talked about that. We've really exhausted that topic in, in episode two. So we rewrote it in 2019 because allegedly prior to that, the implied consent warnings had some flawed language. And you can listen to those episodes for a full discussion of that. So now that we are have decided they're valid, and, and let's all wink at each other and say we've decided they're valid, exactly when and, and how do those warnings, we, we, we know we're going to use the green card, but when does that have to be read, Judge? So the statute specifies that the warning must be read after arrest and immediately, uh, as immediately after arrest. Uh, there are some cases that say that uh, that makes some allowances for reading it uh, a few minutes later, if they're, depending on circumstances. If the officer is working an accident uh, and has to tend to you know, vehicles in the roadway, tow trucks, ambulances, and whatnot, the officer may be able to uh, wait long enough to deal with those things before going back and reading the implied consent notice. And they have to be substantially as, as the 67.1 is written, correct? Early on, this, the statute actually required, and the code, the, the case law required that they be read verbatim. And even the smallest uh, bobble, adding an S to a word, would throw out uh, a reading. But they, they decided they were being too hard on the officers, uh, and they changed that. So now, uh, instead of requiring uh, uh, absolute word-for-word, uh, uh, -word, it just has to be substantively. You can't make a substantive change. So, Tane, what level are you on in Candy Crush? I just cleared that really difficult screen where you have to get 
all of the bubbles broken and all of that stuff. So yeah, anyway, yeah, I'll go back. Go go do. But what now, Tane, you've seen this where where the officer reads that card. I yeah. mean, they because they're trying to read it substantially, and they know that they may make a misstatement or whatever. Yeah. And and you've seen that. Well, yeah, and it's it's like you know in Miranda. I mean, if you hear officers do Miranda rights, no two of them do it exactly the exactly. same. They're no longer right. reading right. it off a card now, so they're not. And doing the thing that. that you wish, Judge, is that you got a yes or a no. The officer reads the things, and the officer and the and the individual says yes. I will take the test. Right? Or, no, I would not care to take your test, sir. That never happens, does it? <laughs> well, I did have one case where the. Uh, Defendant, uh, we had the video. The officer reads the reads the warning to the defendant, looks at the defendant, and says, "Will you submit to chemical testing of your blood?" And the and the driver looks straight at the camera and says, "Look at me." Hell, no. <laughs> Man, <laughs> so, well, I, I guess that was pretty clear. No, just no. It seemed like a refusal. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's really great. Um, the ad lib is is the devil here it's it's, it's oh, yeah. where all of the case law comes from it's where all the conflict comes from is the ad lib between hell no and everything else that follows right, right. there's so many cases where the driver will ask for an explanation oh yeah I, those are the ones i've seen and what would you do many. yeah what right. would you do yeah. exactly <laughs> what do you think the best thing for did, me to I do i just put handcuffs Should on I? you dude why are you asking me yeah. You seem to know more about this than I do. Yeah. Should I, sh I don't know. Should I take the test? Can I call my lawyer? Oh, that's yeah. A, that's a comment. Yeah. Or my mama. Or, or my, my girlfriend yeah. or whatever. Right. Yeah. So occasionally, like you said, officers will make a misstatement. And I think the case law is pretty clear now that the determinative issue is whether or not the notice was set sub uh, substantively accurate so as to permit the driver to make an informed decision about whether to consent to that testing. There's no violation where the officer makes a misstatement, immediately corrects it, and and makes it clear that there was a correction. Right. But by comparison, Tane, when the officer says the relevant blood level is 0 0.10 and it's been 0.8 for a minute, right? That when they had the old, 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 old card, that's a problem. Sure. And because that, that changes the dynamics. That, that's actually not just a misstatement. Yeah, that's, that's a substantive yeah. misstatement of the law. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, you get those cases where the officers will say that the standard is 0.8 instead of 0.08. And the courts have said, oh, yeah. <laughs> courts have said well, that could mislead someone into thinking, well, I'm definitely not 0.8. Exactly. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I might be I'm, only, I'm only like 12. <laughs> I might be a 0.08, but I ain't no 0.8. Yeah, I'm not pickled. <laughs> So the next logical question says, okay, the officer reads the implied consent uh, card or whatever perfectly, but then elaborates or he makes an yeah. right. expl explanatory statement after he gets a quizzical, what was that dog sound earlier? <laughs> yeah, when he gets that from the defendant. So Thank even you, when Scooby. the officer, and this is a quote actually from a case, even when the officer properly gives the implied consent notice, the officer gives an additional deceptively misleading information that impairs that defendant's ability to make an informed decision about whether or not to submit to testing. The defendant's test results or evidence of his refusal to submit to testing must be suppressed. The suppression of evidence, however, is an extreme sanction, Tane. 
and it should not be, and it is not favored in the law. And, and, and what strikes me as a little funny about all of this is that we are talking about this minutia in the way the rights are being read to a person we believe is impaired by alcohol or drugs. Right. So you're talking so, from experience? Wait, wait now. <laughs> wait now. My analysis of this under my Fourth Amendment and Sixth Amendment rights is so-and-so, but that's only because you used an and instead of an or there. <laughs> Just, are you just imagining this analysis yeah, yeah, on the yeah, side yeah. of the road? The roadside you know? test of the intoxicated English professor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the car's upside down yeah. in the ditch, you know. What had happened was, um, <laughs> did, are you familiar with Sigrafus or whatever, however you, Sigrafus, Sigrafus, however you pronounce that, that case? Yeah, well, in, so in Sigrafus, the court said that the mere fact the officer made additional statements beyond those contained within the four corners of the little green card, does not per se render the defendant's consent to testing invalid if it didn't, if it wasn't seriously misleading. So in Sigrafus, the officer made it clear that the defendant was not being asked whether he wanted to submit to a breath test because he said, will you submit to a test of your blood? And the, and, uh, the defendant said, I'll submit to a test of my breath because that's not what you're being asked. He said he was being asked to consent to a blood test. He said, I don't want to consent to a blood test. The officer then responded, and this was masterful, by telling the defendant that if he did not submit to the requested blood test, the defendant would be placed in a holding cell while the officer applied for a search warrant for the defendant's blood. The defendant responded and saying, as, as you can see, so what you're saying is, <laughs> always if I that. say no, then you're going to take my blood anyway? The officer said, instead of saying yes, right, because that would be a logical thing that one mm -hmm. might say, he said, the officer says, if the test is refused, I'm going to go apply for a search warrant. And a judge, if the judge grants that, that right to take that blood sample, if that judge approves that warrant, we are going to take your blood. So then the officer told the defendant that I'm not attempting to threaten you, coerce you, whatever, the decision is totally up to you, sir. The test is voluntary, and you are absolutely allowed to say no. I, I'm just asking whether we can get that officer's name That's, and make him an instructor. It's <laughs> almost like one of those uh, AT&T language lines, like, hey, I need to read some implied consent. Talk to this dude for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a masterful performance by the officer. Indeed, indeed. The defendant indicated Kudos. that he would really like to keep his driver's license so that he could go to work. And then the officer says, I don't know what will happen to your driver's license once this case goes to court, but your license will not immediately be suspended if you submit to testing. Again, I mean, masterful. The defendant responded, well, I'll go along with it because if my license won't get suspended, and that way I can at least continue to go to work. The officer reiterated, if you do the voluntary blood draw, then I don't send anything in for your license to get suspended today. Defendant said, all right, I'll do that. And, and that way, at least I can continue to go to work. Somebody was listening yeah. in class when stuff was getting taught. It's amazing. So the Court of Appeals <laughs> found that the officer's statements were correct statements. And particularly where the officers told the defendant he didn't know what would happen to the license as a result of court proceedings, but he wouldn't get ALS suspended, immediately suspended. So it, and they, this is a great quote. In instances where the officer properly gives the implied consent notice, justice requires suppression of the acquired evidence only 
when the officer gives additional deceptively misleading information that impairs the defendant's ability to make informed decision. The, the quote we just read. They said that the defendant said, well, what about the fact that he coerced me because he told me he was going to go get a search warrant? The Sigurdsson court said, that's just true. Right. True yeah. information cannot be coercive. Yeah. And they barred some of that law from Miranda and they held that all of that was admissible. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Do you ever have, and, and because you have the most experience in any of us here, I've tried several, but not as many, and I represented some clients charged with DUI when I was practicing law. Um, do you have many independent blood test cases? You don't see that many where the person actually goes and gets the independent test. You see more cases where people say, oh, I would have gone and got an independent test if only that officer had uh, enabled me to do so. Uh, which he didn't in this case. Right. Uh, but it's rare when somebody actually goes and gets a test. So, folks... I mean, for the same reason that you yeah. don't go get a warrant. because uh, it, you know, This is happening at dark 30. Uh, you know, find me the... the Clinic or whatever. The, uh, or the doctor who wants to get up at 3.30 and go draw some guy's blood. Exactly. So, we're not going to get into... We're not going to spend any substantial time here, Tane. Just remember that the independent testing is a part of the implied consent law. If there is a clear request for a, an independent test, you have to make that happen because obviously the defendant's in custody, he can't drop. And, and the main part about that is that you must inform the defendant of their right to have that test, Correct. the independent test. That's the big And big if they part. ask for it, you have to facilitate it. Right. As long as they take your test. As long as they take the state If they say, no, I don't want to do that, and you have to go get a search warrant. I want, they my, don't mama, right I want my mama to draw right. it. She's an LPN. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. So we're, we're going to pivot now. We're going to get away from the implied consent, and we're going to talk about this concept of actual consent. And, Tane, you may not have ever used that phrase, but you have absolutely talked about these issues before in felony cases. Sure. Because it's the same cases, it's the same issues that you would normally talk about. You want to talk about this for a minute, Judge? Sure. Can you quit playing Candy Crush long enough to participate? If I do, I will lose this round, and I cannot afford to do yeah. that. Yeah. So, so actual consent is almost the opposite of implied consent. Uh, this is what the revolution that took place with all those cases that came along over the last 10 years, uh, you know, Olovic and Elliott and all of those. Uh, this is where they have said, okay, you've got to use that test that we use for consent to a, a search under a search warrant uh, to determine whether this person understood uh, their rights and, and made a, uh, a consented to a test. Uh, without coercion, uh, and uh, 
without being forced to do so by the officer. After the, uh, the Williams case in uh, 2015, uh, we had just, uh, dozens of cases out of the, uh, the Georgia appellate courts talking about what constitutes uh, in, uh, actual consent and what constitutes coercion. Uh, there are a lot of those cases you could cite uh, out there. The, my favorite one uh, that does the best job of covering the territory is a case called Kendrick versus the state. Uh, and it came out of the Court of Appeals in 2016. Uh, if you don't have that in the case notes, it's at 335 Georgia Appeals, 766, 782 Southeast 2nd, 842. Uh, the Kendrick uh, uh, case uh, reiterated, uh, like Elliot, that the, the question is the totality of the circumstances. We're not going to look at any one uh, circumstance here. You need to look at all of the circumstances and consider whether... Uh, the consent that was uh, that was obtained was coerced by the officer by things such as uh, making threats. Um, um, the cases that say uh, uh, he he forced me to take the test because he said he wouldn't he wasn't going to allow me to go to the restroom if I didn't take the test or until I took the test. And and folks in this in this uh, outline that we have episode outline where can they find that tank at goodjudgepod.com, Wade. And that there are sites to a lot of those cases, all that about going to the bathroom and all, all that's in, in our outline. But at the end of the day, you said something, the, the term of art, that, that really becomes the key. The key words, you know, totality of the circumstances. Not any one thing is going uh, to determine the thing. You're going to need to ask whether the officers used fear, intimidation, threat of physical punishment, or lengthy detention to obtain the consent. You also need to consider uh, the state of the defendant. Um, well, let's let, let's let Tane, let's let yeah. Tane read the list of the, of the sort of factors they suggested is a non-exclusive list, Tane. You suggest that I don't know this off the top of my head, Wade. Well, no, but I mean. <laughs> no, they're, they're important things. Uh, like, they are similar to the things you look at to determine whether someone's confession uh, was, was valid or not. And they're things like, how old was the driver? Was the driver threatened with physical harm? Was the uh, driver in custody when the implied consent warnings were read to him or her? Uh, did the defendant understand the English language uh, when that was, when they were being read had the defendant been injured uh, at the time maybe in a car collision uh, at the time that those uh, rights were read and did those injuries somehow impair the defendant's ability to give voluntary consent to testing had the defendant been combative with the officer uh, did the defendant participate in an sfst Standardized field, field sobriety, sobriety test. There we're we go, going to discuss in the next episode. Was the defendant's demeanor during his or her uh, interaction with the officer? What What was the defendant's demeanor during their interaction with the officer? Did the defendant ever seek to withdraw his or her agreement to voluntarily provide the sample? Um, and then there's there's basically a comprehensive list of the sorts of issues that the trial judge could, should consider uh, in a case called Diaz versus State, and that's also in our outline. So in short, the prosecutor should not also ask the officer if he or she read the implied consent warnings to the defendant and the defendant took the test and then sit down and say, I rest. Oh, right. You need to cover you know, all of the circumstances there. Uh, and almost all of these encounters these days are on video, and you're going to get to watch the video if you're holding one of these motions to suppress. And the appellate court will watch the video if yeah, you don't. They will, too. Oh, yes, they will. Uh, and they'll draw their own conclusions from the video. Uh, I always, uh, once this 
revolution happened and we started talking about voluntary consent, I always thought it was kind of amusing for uh, defense lawyers to do this, but they do. In many of these cases, they'll get up and the defense will be, well, judge, it wasn't voluntary consent because my client was so sloppy drunk he had no idea what he was saying. He, he was so consent. drunk that his consent to give a test that proved he, he was, was just drunk. that drunk right. cannot be introduced. That's right. Heaven. I like to call it the drunk or the better rule. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when you're, if if you're a judge listening to this, if you when when you're asked to make one of these decisions, use phrases like actual consent and totality of the circumstances, and do some of the analysis that Tane read that was in Diaz. It's in a bunch of other cases as well. But do, but do and some of that. And it's also in our outline at goodjudgepod.com. Look it? at you. Um, and use the trunk or the better rule and give me a footnote and credit <laughs> yeah. for that. But Absolutely. there is no suggestion that the judge should decide whether in retrospect it was a good decision to refuse or to give the or to give a sample. That's not the question. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're not you're not judging whether he should have or not. The only question is, did he do so uh, knowingly, voluntarily, intelligently? So, in fact, you're going to see a lot of the case law on actual consent in our outline. Um, the, the, the fact that an officer read the complied consent warnings is only one aspect of the overall analysis of actual consent and whether or not the defendant gave not, um, true voluntary consent. It's much more than a yes or no as to whether or not it was actual consent or whether they gave the, even if they gave the sample, that's not the question. You have to go further, judge. Um, and so where the defendant doesn't follow the script and um, says things like that, hey, uh, I'm going to take a little nap now, and when we get to the jail, I will uh, be more communicative or throws up or becomes belligerent or asked to call his lawyer, parent, preacher, whatever, or take some other action beyond yes or no, the trial court actually has a duty to determine whether consent to the testing was freely and voluntarily made under that totality of the circumstances. Right. Test. Yeah. Do you have just a thing that comes to mind, this was the most bizarre? Yeah, there's, there's one uh, case where the officer read the warning to the guy after he has had a one vehicle accident he ran into a tree or something and the guy is alternately he's he's having lucid intervals but in between his lucid intervals he's he's crying he's sobbing he's rolling on the ground screaming uh and during a lucid interval he consented to the test but the uh, trial judge said i'm just finding under the totality of the circumstances here this was not uh actual consent and the court of appeals upheld him on that and but now let's be honest let's let's take a little detour from the from the outline for one second yeah let's assume that you suppress that evidence does that mean the defendant can't be prosecuted for dui oh no he's you 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 still have evidence that the defendant the was driving or whatever or national physical control of a moving vehicle uh, you've got evidence that uh, you probably have an odor of alcohol coming from his breath or person. You may have some open containers in the vehicle. And under those circumstances, the officer, if he's smart, will go get a search warrant and get a, a blood sample. So, or might not even have to get a, blood, uh, a, a search warrant for a blood sample if this guy's about to go to the hospital and get some blood drawn. And that's Good a whole other topic we'll about the DOFS test. Spoilers. Right. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Um, Tane, when people talk about force, anytime they're talking about Miranda, they're talking about it, it here, 
they're not usually talking about rubber hoses or punching in the face. They're usually talking more about, I, I don't know, subtle force or, um, in other words, you mentioned earlier about going to the bathroom, right? Yeah. yeah. So, Tame, where the defendant, when the whole issue of needing to go to the bathroom, well, I, I had to consent because I had to go to the bathroom. You, you got some thoughts on that part about some of the case law that, that followed that whole topic? Yeah. I mean, well, again, I mean, we're talking about a totality of the circumstances. So you've got to look at everything that went into what's allegedly force. And um, if the alleged force, whether it be direct or or more nuanced, was not a factor in the defendant's decision to submit to the state-administered testing, then the force can't be deemed to have been a part of the totality of the circumstances that would render the subsequent consent involuntary. So, I mean, in other words, if, if um, in all of the circumstances that we're looking at, if the, if the defendant says, well, I really needed to go to the bathroom, but there's nothing that indicates on the video or, or in what his statement to the officer was that he hesitated, you know, and, and that he only did or, or, or that he uh, only gave consent because he was, you know, doing the, the dance that uh, is so familiar to us all um, in that situation, the judge can make a determination that that wasn't force that caused him to make an involuntary consent. You know, when the implied consent's already been read and answered before we ever mention bathroom, that's probably going to make it really hard to be a persuasive argument that going to the bathroom ended up being some sort of forced uh, consent. So, yeah. Or if it was never mentioned, but the defendant ultimately says, well, I really needed to go to the bathroom, so I consented to it, but he never, never mentioned, mentioned it. And, and wasn't even uh, doing the dance. Yeah. If you're, not, <laughs> if you're not squeezing your knees hard enough or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So let's recap what we've learned today, Tane. Uh, implied consent warnings, those are statutory, and they have to be read at the time of the defendant's arrest for DUI. That's right, and they need to be read, read substantially as written in the statute, OCGA section 40-5-67.1. The ad lib between the officer and the suspect can be vitally important to an ultimate determination as to whether the defendant was properly informed of his or her rights because the the determination that the court's going to be making is was something told to the defendant that would mislead them misinform them lead them to give an, an incorrect response to that and was there some other circumstance that uh, made this consent not voluntary mm -hmm. so when the prosecutor is claiming that a defendant consented to the testing it is important that the trial judge look at the totality of the circumstances not merely rely upon finding of whether the implied consent warnings were read and a sample was given Instead, use those phrases and use that analysis of actual consent, totality of the circumstances, and ensure that your order shows that you considered actual consent and totality of the circumstances. Now, as always, Wade, our episode outline can be found at goodjudgepod.com together with the citations to authority for all the different points of law that we discussed today. And we're going to continue this series on DUI, DUI law, excuse me, although it was not mentioned earlier, this topic was actually suggested by one of our loyal listeners, or a loyal listener, or the loyal listener. Yeah, the loyal the listener. Loyal listener. Yeah. Please follow the Good Judgment Podcast on your favorite, favorite platform and press that like button. It helps people find our work. And it just makes us feel good. Really so I'm Wade Padgett. I'm Ben Studdard. And I'm Tame Kell. And remember... Consent is always necessary in these cases. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics 
allow us to be have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this episode. Any last thoughts before we wrap this up? You can tune a piano, but you can't make it drink. Just in case there's some copyright issue with REO Speedwagon.